Hello and welcome to episode three of The Catalyst. And this week's theme is actually women in leadership. And on the show, we focused on women in political leadership, but you cannot have a conversation around women in leadership without discussions around corporate spaces and organizational spaces. And so with me today, I have the amazing Masi Randa, who will introduce herself because she's worn several different shoes over the path of her career. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks, Noni. Um, my name is Masiranda. My biggest hat, my main hat at the moment is um, I'm the founder and managing partner of uh, PNL Consulting. Every time I say PNL Consulting, everybody asks me, does that mean profit and loss? Actually, it means profit and loss. Profit and loss consulting is a um, financial communication firm. We've been in the market for seven years and um, so, as I said, that's my main heart. I started off as a business journalist at uh, the Nation Media Group. I left Nation um, in 2006, December, uh, December of 2006, to join Ogilvy. Oh, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I always find that when it comes to media specifically, there's a lot of space given to women to cover what they term as soft issues. It's rare to find somebody who is actually on the business desk or the political desk. It's actually quite interesting how I transitioned into the business desk because um, I, was, I was also working for NMG in Dar es Salaam when they were just setting up the newspaper there, The Citizen. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was part of that group that was deported by Jakaya Kikwete just when he was... You need to give us context. Oh, I know. So like in, 2000, <laughs> in 2005, yes. I guess that's a time... Um, I, I don't know if it's a senior that... Uh, Tanzania was holding the election mm. and um, the citizen, which is an uh, uh, affiliate newspaper for Daily Nation in Tanzania, had been launched. And, you know, those like it had a lot of fire in its, in its belly. And, you know, the writing had heating articles mm. and everything that, you know, free and fair. Right. Which didn't sit well with the with the, with the government of Tanzania at the time. So one morning they just wake up and say, you know what? All Kenyans have to leave. Mm. And it was done in such a way that, yes, the work permit had been applied for, but they were sitting in somebody's office. So, yes, you're in the office. You don't have your work permit, but uh, it's not that you've, you've disregarded applying for the work permit. And that's what the case was with my colleagues. But with me, I remember the time my parents worked there. So I was a student there. And by virtue of being a student, so that was like part of my internship. Mm. And they look at my case and they say, no, you shouldn't be deported. But because you just work for this newspaper, you have to go. And that basically set me up on a space where I left my parents behind. I was pretty young. I came to Nairobi. Um, I joined NMG here in Nairobi. And the first desk I worked at NMG was um, those, I don't know if you, you, you remember, but there's a pullout that came out every Monday called Outlook. It was also, it was one of the most interesting pullouts I think NMG ever did because it's um it was a long read pullout where we did investigative pieces. Mm -hmm. It came out every Monday, and I think I did some of my most exciting stories when I worked with uh, that particular pullout. 
Um, as it is with change, they decided to fold the pullout and uh, introduce like a sports magazine on the Monday. I never knew anything about sports. I just, okay, I, play, I played hockey, but I just didn't know how to... I wasn't interested in covering sports. Mm-hmm. So between... Um, we're in a space where now Outlook has been folded. They, they introduced uh, Football Monday. I haven't moved to the business desk. And because I was young, they just by default put me on uh, buzz. And I wasn't feeling home. Like you've just moved from like your long read investigatives to buzz. I stayed there for about two months. And um, I actually pleaded with the editor for the business desk to just give me a home at your desk. I find that so interesting because nowadays when you look at media publications that typically target young people, they become very political, especially the big global ones. You think of Teen Vogue. Yes. You know, you think of platforms like Vice, Jezebel, they become Deadspin, they become so political. So do you feel like the generation now has more that seriousness in what they're interested in reading versus say mine and yours? At that point in time. I think, I mean, with every generation, the level of exposure goes deeper and deeper. It's, and I think it's due to technology. Mm-hmm. You have more access to, you know, so many things. Your worldview is broadened and even your understanding of uh, situation. So the way in which you want, um, the way in which you want to be spoken to mm-hmm. also gets deeper and deeper. So even in terms of covering the issues, the way a 16-year-old would articulate themselves right now is not the same way we were articulating ourselves at 16, mm. right? And it's just because you now have access to all these like current affairs globally, what's going on, right? What's going on in Nigeria right now? Everybody knows that. Even a 10-year-old will say, you know, this is what happened because it's right in your face now, mm. right? So then that broadens your, your worldview and you sort of start to look at things very differently. But at the time when somebody was telling me to write stories for Buzz, it was more about fashion days. Mm. And it wasn't exciting. And I remember we were the first group of female journalists at NMG. We were the three of us. Myself, uh, you must know Carol Odero. She's currently... Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, True Love. She left True Love. She's currently a CIO. Okay. And then uh, there was another colleague of ours called Waruguru Mushira. She, she left media entirely. So we were just the three of us female and then the rest of the team on the desk were guys. It wasn't easy to fit in because now you've made this transition and you want to learn. And the time for learning is not as much because the guys have been there. They're very conversant with this language and everything. Sometimes we'd go to a brainstorm and, you know, they'd speak like, of, like if you don't know, you don't know, right? I remember one time we were sitting there and I think, um, Uchumi was doing really badly. Mm. And it's almost like by the guys looking at each other, they already had communicated and asked us and look at each other like, what did they just say? So it took us quite some time, not really like a lot of time, but, you know, with a lot more dedication and more interest, we sort of just built um, like a very formidable team. And I think from there, I got this opportunity to work at Ogilvy, and that's how I left NMG. It's so interesting um, because I I also used to work in media at that time and in other spaces. And it's true. I think that when you were younger, you didn't have the benefit of Google quickly at your fingertips, right? So you enter these industries with a lot of jargon, with a lot of specialized knowledge, and you're not able to quickly 
understand exactly, what the yeah. person is saying, which is very different from when I moved from, to Telco. Yeah. And I had Google. So I would sit in meetings with my laptop open. Yeah. And they would say decrement and da da da, da and, I would, and then you'd get. I'd be googling and get it, and so and you know, it like was it's, easier. It's too yeah. So on one hand, you probably did not have Google. On the other hand, even the content on mm. Google was also just evolving, yes. right? But I'll tell you something quite interesting. When I left NMG and went to Ogilvy, what I realized was, from okay, from a media perspective, the PR guys would come to pitch to you stories. But more often than not, you'd also see that they're struggling to understand what they're trying to pitch to mm. you, right? Because it's easy to go and pitch like a, a product story. It's easy to go and pitch um, a, a brand story, stuff like that, right? But then when your client now comes and says, your client is in private equity, they say, we want to exit this business. Like, what exactly do you mean you want to exit this business? All these jargons, yeah, what's the multiple of what, you know, those kind of things. And I was, so like, the difference between media and PR is like, on PR, you're on the other side where you're creating the story with a client before you bring it to the press, right? But having now crossed over, then I could see how they'd work to create the story to bring it to press. But at the same time, with my background in media, I'd say, I'd quickly say, I can see the missing link. Mm. You guys are going to pitch this story to these guys, but you even haven't understood it, mm. right? And from there, I just made that deliberate decision to just say, going forward, I'm going to try and simplify the financial jargon, even to the media that I'm going to be working with. And from 2008, that's one of the things that I've been doing. And if you will just speak to some of my colleagues at Ogilvy that I worked with, I remember my boss, uh, Okotha Bada at the time, I just told him plainly, don't put me on any uh, consumer um, or brand assignments because it's not what I want to do mm. at a young age. And I guess at, at that point, um, I handled accounts like Barclays Bank. We had Actis at the time, handled that. It was quite interesting. It's been, it's been like a steep learning curve, but then the more interest you have, the faster you learn, right? Mm. And Ultimately, when I set up PNL Consulting, it was this as in the the challenge was still there. You have new guys graduating from campus and getting into the newsroom, and these new guys still, you know, still need to learn about all these things because you're not you're taught journalism, but you're not taught the financial jargon. But you still have to come in, report, mm. and remember you're the mouthpiece now. That everybody who cannot interact with a company has to interact with your story. So it's at the benefit of the company to make sure that the journalist who is actually writing on the story understands, understands the jargons. Then it makes their work also easier. And I think even now it's even more acute that this understanding is important because you have journalists on social media. And so your content is not just top down. It's that exactly. I'll interact with it and actually come and ask you questions on social media and so therefore if you don't know. if you don't exactly and in addition to that some of the guys uh who like you do a story it's get it's gonna get published right now almost everybody's a publisher you have like three thousand followers you're a publisher you have ten thousand followers you're a publisher so if you're interacting with a story that somebody wrote and the story was not factually correct but then you take whatever was written because you also not uh you don't have access to the alternative side of the story mm. You come and you start discussing that with the facts that you have, right? And because of the large following that you have, I guess the misleading just keeps, you know, it's like a triple um, effect and it just keeps going and going and on. And it's like a multiple effect kind of um, thing. 
So the need to just also work very closely with the media guys to make sure that they understand. Because, I mean, you can imagine on one day, today you're covering Safaricom, tomorrow you're covering Kakuzi, the next day you're covering Uchum, the next day you're covering Kenya Airways. You're, you're not an expert in all of these things. So it just needs like that hand-holding, break it down as simple as possible. And there are very many journalists who are open to just hold my hand, show me how your business works so that the next time there's a, there's a progress or an update, um, we don't get backlash that we do not understand what we're talking about. Do you ever think we're going to get to the point like other other entities where they're actual specialists within the organization? I think of it in terms of even with COVID, um, people really struggled. I remember when, I can't remember which plane crash this was, very famous, the Ethiopian Airlines, yeah. actually. Yeah. And there was one guy specifically, I think, who was on all media houses. I think he's called Alex something yeah. something. Yeah. I forget his name. Ale yeah, Alex Oliti. <laughs> no, no, no. He was or, he was uh, or global. Yes, yeah. global. But he yeah. was on all media platforms because he was literally the person who was able to translate what was happening mm. in a way that was yeah. And he's a journalist, and it's like an aviation exactly. he's written over and over. Again. Right. So, do you think we'll ever get to that space where you know we have this? I think of even somebody like Taylor Lawrence in yeah. the New York Times, who just focuses on digital tech yes, and yes, specifically yes. social media. Do you think we'll ever I think get there? There's a time I feel we almost got there, mm. right? But the concern of the media business mm. in our side of the world it just. I, I remember at some point, everybody was trying to fragment and do like specialized projects. Yes. And then the next thing you hear is convergence. So if you're a journalist for this, you you, you end up like you're cutting across, mm. right? So you don't quite get the resources and the time you require to just uh, go deeper and deeper into an issue to the point of just like me, I'm a journalist on robotics. Mm. And that's all I want to cover. So there's so much to cover on this and day and night I sleep and I eat it and this is all I do, right? By the time, unless, I, I don't know how the media business will bounce back to a place where now um, its sustainability is not just on, um, it goes beyond bottom line. But do you think it's a chicken and egg thing? Because in countries with robust industries and varied industries, you know, they have everything from robotics to tea right which mm -hmm. we don't have and so therefore yeah. the pr side then drives this other side i think it's it's more of a it's more of a priority issue because in there's some businesses where the shareholders would say let's forgo dividends for now let's build the business what do we need to build the business to get to where we want it to be right on the other hand, the businesses that are driven just to make sure that the shareholders get their dividends. Mm. Because even we have like activist shareholders who if they don't get dividends are up in arms. So the business is done in such a way that at the end of the day, make your shareholders happy. So you do not have like the amount of money or maybe resources you would say, let's reinvest back in the business to grow it and make this cake richer for an eventual. So if you had like, I think it's an issue of patient capital. That's what I'd say. Mm. Right. So, so you move from media in Tanzania to Kenya. Kenya. <laughs> move from a youth platform to a business platform. Move to agency. Are very clear about your direction in terms of career, and then 
out of that, you know, you come out of it and you form a consulting unit. Um, you know, I speak to a lot of different generations of women and the clarity of moving across very many different industries is one that's A, not easy, and B, that requires a lot of very specific discipline and experience. Yeah. And so I'd love to just hear what your thoughts on are, what your experience was like, you know, just mapping this thing out, if it was mapped out at all. Yeah. Yes. So I've, I've always been very clear about what I want to do, right? Mm -hmm. It's a getting there that sometimes you, you just get lots of curveballs on the way. So I leave Ogilvy in 2009. And I say, you know, actually I was retrenched, mm. right? And I, I think I felt so bad about the retrenchment, not on a personal level or anything, but I just felt like nothing is sure. The only thing that can be sure is if I set up my own thing. But at that time I was so young, I think I was 25. Mm. And 25, the good thing about what Ogilvy equipped me with is that um, it was a very open working environment that you, if you're interested in learning, you learn very quickly. So I learned the back office of how to build clients, what goes in fast, you know, mm. the paperwork and everything. I learned the client service side as well. And then, of course, uh, with the, just my personality as a person, the things that if you agree with the client that you're going to do. So those kind of things are the ones that make somebody trust you. So again, like our business is more of a trust business. Um, so I started my first business at that age. And it didn't go well. It didn't go too well. Mm. So I went back to employment in 2010 and I worked with Africa Practice, which was, uh, it's also a communication uh, consultancy firm. But their strength now was in strategy, which is what I felt like everything was then just falling into place because you've come from background of journalism and, you know, you've, you know the newsroom, you know what makes a good story, you know, all of that. Then you've gone to Ogilvy and you've learned about, it's, it's it, you know, you've learned about your, your client service, how to work in just this, um, you know, multidisciplinary agency. And then now you go to a firm that now they just focus more on strategy. So it just brought things together. But I left Africa practice to join Africa Development Bank. And when I joined ADB, my, my hope at the time was that, uh, you know, it, I mean, it was naturally that I just felt like I was going to a bigger organization. It was a bigger role because I was uh, the communication consultant for the Eastern Africa region. So it really gave me the, that kind of exposure into like the different markets and everything. But in a year and a half, I realized that if I'd stayed at the bank any longer, I would never leave and I would never achieve what I wanted to do. Mm. So I remember sitting at my office at ADB one day and that's just calling the lawyers and said, just, why don't you just register for me a company? We registered it in 2013. In 2014, February, I was out. And I remember when I set up here, no consult. I even knew the name. Like before I'd left the bank, I knew this is what I had the tagline. I was just like, I know what I want. Yes. <laughs> I should show you the first logo. <laughs> so anyway, the first seven months of PL consulting, I never had an income. I remember I, I used to live in a house and didn't even have curtains. Mm. Like I, mo I moved houses, but now the old curtains couldn't fit the new house. But I was just like, listen, all the money has gone to the business, right? I have nothing. I'll just stay like I live on the top floor. So I'll just stay like that. I had like shares and that was good enough. Did I have shares? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. But for seven months, just like proposal after proposal after proposal. 
sleep at 4 a.m., like wake up at 4 a.m. I remember the, most of the guys at the beginning of the setup of PNL used to ask if I sleep at all. Yes. And um, the first client we got was a private equity fund. And I was very clear. The thing is, we really wanted to just entrench ourselves in the financial sector and say we are doing financial communication. But most of the work that followed me was mostly crisis and reputation management assignments because that is what I'd done at Africa Practice for the longest. So, but when the work comes, especially when you can't turn away work, mm. you just take that money and say, I'm going to put it in here. But for real, for real, what we really want to do, we want to do financial communication. And um, also as well as investor relations. Because I feel like this market, in as much as the, the financial markets are growing, but investor relations, is, it's one of those areas that has not been really explored. Because investor relations, just to put it simply, if, say, for example, you and I have a party, we are peers, mm. you have a party, I have a party, your guest list and my guest list is the same, right? The same guys you want at your party are the same guys I want at my party, okay. right? So now it depends on whose party is kicking, mm -hmm. right? If uh, we have the same five friends, some will come to your party first and then end up at mine. Some will um, stay at yours longer or at mm. mine longer. Some will snub me and come to you or vice versa, right? So if we use a real example, take take example like two international banks listed on the NSC. We pick Barclays Bank, we pick Stanchard, mm -hmm. their peers. Um, they're looking for institutional investors. So the same institutional investors that are looking at that stock, look at this stock, Okay. And then they want to know, like, how much money have you put in that stock? And if I find that out, can I try and interest them to hold my stock? Because I need the money for my own operation. So if they're able to provide that for me in that chunk, and especially institutional investors, then, you know, it, there's lots of things we can advance as a business, right? Mm. So then investor relation, what it comes to do is to just try and scope for you who are the institutional investors who are looking into which party to go to, especially if it's your peer, and how do you engage them, mm. right, to keep them interested, to either keep coming to your party or staying at your party longer, because, you know, then you need that capital to just advance some of your operations. Right. And yeah. and when we think of a party, since we're sticking there, um, there's the element of transparency and accountability. If you mm. invite me to your party, and you promised me a hip-hop party and I get there and it's Roomba. Exactly. We're going to have a problem, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and transparency and accountability, I think, is something that quite a few companies tend to struggle with. Um, and, and this could be from an investor relations perspective or corporate governance point of view. And we've seen its impact firsthand. Yeah. Um, in Kenya, in terms of, you know, companies shutting down, companies going down, um, the fact that some of them have even gone to the extent of even asking for a government bailout yeah. um, because the impact of it is just so heavy. So I just wanted you to speak on that a little bit more in terms of what are some of the lessons you learned um, on transparency, on accountability, and that can also be translated not just to the stakeholders of the business, but also the people internally running it. So it's, I think it's important that you bring up uh, corporate governance. And I believe as a country, we are, I believe we are one of the most 
also what governed mm. countries that they are at every level from a nuclear family all the way to government, like if we even overrepresented. So when it comes to like corporate governance, you find that most companies, if not all, have like very clear corporate governance guidelines, mm. all of them, right? If uh, even the guidelines say you have to meet this many times as a board, and even the board, you have to have this many committees, and this is what the committees, this is their mandate as committees, and this is what they can do, this is what they cannot do. It's all there, mm. right? The problem usually comes in in the execution of it, yeah? So, and it's not just execution. Sometimes you find, like, you're a board member, and uh, you're meeting within, like, the prescribed number of times. You've checked all of that. But even the worst thing is the information that's being brought to you before you as a board member for discussion on a decision that's supposed to be involving the business that you're a board member on. Sometimes even that information is false. Mm -hmm. So it just comes down to, so like the, I'd say there are three different things. So on the first thing is, um, does corporate governance work in the country? Yes, I think it does in terms of just the, the skeleton of yes. it, right? We have very clear guidelines, especially for listed companies. We even have the regulator to just ask, have you guys met all these guidelines and everything, right? That's there. Now, it also comes down to the people themselves, right? As a, as a, if you're nominated to a board or you're a member of a board, of a, of a board, there's a listed company or private company, right? There's some question that you're supposed to ask, right? But if you get in on the board and the first thing that somebody asks you, so for example, Noni, and I digress a little bit, if you open the, the Kenya Gazette on Friday and you see um, Masiranda has been appointed to this board, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Honestly speaking, it's A, how did you get there in terms of experience? I mean, what, what experience are you bringing on board? And secondly, what's in it for you? Those are actually the two exactly key things. So the first thing that usually comes to someone's mind, and I'm not speaking for everybody, but most mm -hmm. girls would be, she's going to make money, mm -hmm. right? So if you can imagine me as, a, as somebody who's not been appointed to the board, and that is how I've looked at it, right? Mm -hmm. So assuming you're out there and the board is meeting in here, Right, you're even thinking those board members are just planning how they're going to make the money. It's almost like we've made a provision for them to make that money. So even them, they know going in. Is there right? anything wrong with that, though? But you see, <laughs> as a board member, yes. you have your allowances that are mm -hmm. prescribed and everything, and you're only invited to a board because of your competency, not for you to just go to be there. Selfish. And okay, a board member position is not. Of course, we have guys who all their life, all they do is sit on boards because of this particular access and everything. But as a board member, what you should be offering, you're brought on board because of your wealth of knowledge for guidance on the business, right? But if you go there and your primary reason is you're going to make money, then even your role as a board member is just you've thrown it out of the window, right? Mm. So the things that you should be checking, you look the other way on things, right? Mm-hmm. Things that you should be questioning. Why did this happen? Why did why didn't it not happen the way it's supposed to be happening? Mm -hmm. So you look the other way because you know the only one who is looking the other way. All of you guys are looking the other way because 
everybody's on the table selfishly, mm. right? So yes, we have the guidelines and we have the structures which work. And then we come to the people, right? How much integrity do they have? And you can find like out of six, maybe just one person is, is not straightforward. But if six are straightforward, they should be able to dilute this one person who's not straightforward, right? But if you have like um, the majority are not straightforward, then clearly the whole board is rotten, mm. right? So even if you're like at a, at a, at the sea suits, then they can even corrupt them the whole entire business by just they cook the documents. Some of the guys and the, the the board members, the executive ones especially, have access to some of these things, operational uh, uh, details and everything. You can come there and ask questions and hold the C suit accountable and just ask, why are we going this way, right? The only reason I'm on this board is because I have wealth and wealth and knowledge of this. We've been, we've been through this before with another company. So I can quickly tell you that this is not going to work. Let's push back, right? And if you're going to do that, then you also uh, want the other board members who are also are coming on board with a wealth of knowledge to say, this is why we're actually pushing back, right? Yes. We're not doing this for our own selfish reasons. We're doing this for the benefit of the business, right? But when the board doesn't hold itself accountable, they cannot hold the C-suit accountable. Mm. And then what you have is like, it just degenerates and it degenerates and it gets to a point where, We've seen businesses go under. And mm. people start to say, oh, when did the rain start beating us? Oh, when did the rain start? You, you very well know when the rain start beating you. Right? That's, that's true. So you moved, or rather maybe you've not moved, actually. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> you still have your consultancy company, but now you've opened a lifestyle brand, um, which is focusing on the experience of outdoor living and specifically around eating out in a picnic setting. And I think of lifestyle brands abroad that actually have a lot of equity fund funding. Um, it seems like, you know, this pretty cute lifestyle brand. You'd never imagine that in the background there are all of these sort of like big investor type, financial type people actually running this brand. Is that something that you're planning to build into your brand considering your experience in the financial sector? So um, one of the things that, I'll just tell you a story. So when I started set up PNL, I thought it was like a really a bankable approach to communication. And um, I don't know if you've ever like tried to take notice. Maybe it's like just a bit out of your industry, but more often than not, we don't get uh, investors say they put in their money in communication industry. One mm. of my clients, I told him, why don't you like invest in our business? He said, you know, Masi, you're a working asset. If you drop that tomorrow, then mm. so we have contracts, we have what? Like, yeah. But the contracts are because of you and the team you've built. So it's very risky. For, so it actually needs somebody who's in the same industry as you to mm. come and say, I'll bet on you because then we've seen the growth path and this is where we're going to go take it with you, right? So that's on the communication kind of business and consultancy generally, right? It, it's almost like um, a private equity fund going to put in money in a law firm, mm -hmm. right? 
in more advanced economies, what they would do is um, uh, how they do they finance the finance maybe a litigation because they know maybe it's a class action suit and they know at the end of it uh, there's gonna be payments that will be made and then maybe you'll make like a percentage out of that. I've seen that happening, mm-hmm. but not not here, mm. right? So consultancy like that maybe the financing is has to be very creative and it has to be in partnership with somebody who understands your business. Otherwise, if you partner with somebody who doesn't understand your industry, doesn't understand your business, and they're not patient, you know, it, it never works, right? Mm. So anyway, the um, the project you talk about, the which is now the picnic side, the vintage picnics, it's more of a pandemic project. And it started... I guess once an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur, whenever mm. you see like an opportunity, you say, hey, why not? Right. And uh, just during the pandemic, everything is slowing down and everybody now gets fatigued of just staying indoors. And you ask yourself, what can we do and uh, how can we take advantage of this uh, situation? So everybody is asking you, where, where do you, where do you go with your child? If you now just want to go outdoors, where can you go? Cause WHO says, you know what? You're more susceptible to catching COVID if you stay in enclosed spaces for longer. Mm-hmm. So then you tell guys, why don't you guys get outdoors? Because you've, you're tired of staying indoors. You stay, and then when you get out of the house and go to an enclosed space, you're pretty much at more risk even. So why can't you guys start going to the parks, hikes, camping and you know the beauty about Nairobi is that we never run short of all those kind of um, opportunities we're like everywhere right but every time you're out you have to eat Mm. right and especially if you're out in the open it's the eating is definitely a picnic whether you're out in a hike you know but we started mixing it together we said the guys who are looking for things to do right and if you're looking for things to do, you'd definitely be looking, what do I wear, right? What do I carry out when I'm going with kids? What do I bring with me? What do I pack? What do I, where do I go? Who do I go? What do I listen to when I'm out there? Mm-hmm. So it's like giving guys all these ideas. So like, let's set up a, a publication. And the publication, the only thing it's going to focus on is everything outdoors, right? From road trips to all of that. Just get guys to crowd in content and just highlight what they're doing with their lives outdoors now. Just to get guys more outdoorsy than in enclosed spaces, you basically try to get back your life to normal without necessarily thinking that life has to happen within enclosed spaces. Mm. And that's how we we set up the picnic site. I love it. Thank you so much for coming in and just showing us the possibility of breath. And not Thank you for having breath, me. But also actually a lot of depth. Um, there's just so much that you know about your specific sectors because, you know, people always say if you're a jack of all trades, then you don't really go into, into depth. But with you, I feel like the depth element has also been figured out. So yeah. it's really great to just have discussions with people who just have that perspective or doing extremely well in it yeah. um, and continuing to push. I just one thing that I think it's important to add is just um, in as much as I talk, I've talked about the picnic site and the COVID element, there's also like my core business of um, how do businesses, especially the ones that are listed on NEC, springboard this pandemic to still keep the investors uh, 
you know, mm. coming back, how do they still like maintain and sustain that investor confidence, especially with what's happening abroad? Most of our institutional investors, if they're not local pension funds, then they'll be like all the DFIs abroad, even the pension funds that are putting money in those um, um, what is it called? development finance institutions. And they're looking now for investments everywhere. Mm. And usually in a time like this in the bear market, that's where now you go, you buy and you hope that things will ramp up. And then you can you can you know you can make money out of that. So this is a really good time for companies to just start packaging themselves, right? Talking about the future, just how sustainable can the businesses be post this? Because you know, COVID will it'll it's it's it'll kind of like the Spanish, but it'll disappear. I guess mm-hmm. we'll get medicine for it and then it'll go. But then how do you uh package your narrative like sustainably this is where the business is going to be get on board with me now mm. because every business will need the capital to take off again right so this is the time to start having that conversation of where do we where do we go to fundraise we start to do investor relations now where which door do we knock on how do we package our stories? How do we present ourselves? And I think one of the things that keeps the investors always coming back and interested is that what we spoke about earlier is that transparency of mm. am I able to get information when I want it to make me, to allow me to make the decision that I'm supposed to be making, mm. right? And it's that transparency that also comes back to the board. Sometimes you have very brilliant board members and they want to do the right thing, but for one reason or the other, either by virtue of the environment or just a few bad eggs, they just also end up getting compromised and the businesses don't quite derive the value from them sitting on the board. Awesome. So, Masi, where would people find you? Um, <laughs> so, um, I have a website, yes. um, www.p-l.co.ke. That's okay. my PNL consulting website. But I'm also on Twitter at Masiranda. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy. And uh, I guess that's the only platform that I'm on. Dope. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dope. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, this is episode three of News by the Catalyst. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok on the same, same name that is at news by the catalyst thank you so much for listening in good vibes when we get down with the tribe it's a new age groove one step at a time and we move to the tune while we're set in